Hey, I know you're probably driving or running or cleaning the house or doing something else when you're listening to this, but look, if you're a B2B marketer and you need to start generating revenue from your marketing, then you have to check out our 12-week program, the B2B Incubator. It's built for small, in-house B2B marketing teams with limited time and budget. We give you the strategy, the templates, and the tools to start driving revenue, not just leads. So if you're ready to act on all the advice Kevin and I give you, next time you take that first sip of coffee in the morning, make sure you head to the B2B Incubator and apply now. There's only 10 spots available per cohort with our next one launching at the end of May, 2024. Remember, the B2B Incubator, apply now so you don't miss out. We've had B2B marketing managers, CMOs, marketers in demand generals, content leads, and more all go through this program and they're currently executing the demand strategies that they've created. Some are now even contributing as much as 80% of the pipeline to their business after working through it. Make sure you check out the b2bincubator.com and apply now to start driving more demand and more revenue for your brand. Okay, let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the B2B Playbook Podcast. Each week we demystify digital marketing and help B2B businesses grow online. We're your hosts, Kevin and George, a couple of digital marketing professionals. We've waded through the noise and made the mistakes so you don't have to. We'll cover the right plan to get your amazing business growing online, along with tips and tricks from our upcoming playbook, as well as insights from successful people in the industry. If you're in a B2B business and would like to see your marketing work for you, then this is the podcast for you. Subscribe to get the latest from the B2B playbook first. Remember, with the right plan, anyone can grow their business online. Hello and welcome back to the B2B playbook podcast. Kev, Kev, I see you got headphones on. It's been a while for you, haven't you? Your ears have been naked. What's going on? Yes, yes, my uh, ear infection has now completely kicked itself out of my head and uh, I can use headphones again. So what a, nice what a to... wonderful way for people to be introduced to our podcast if they've never, ever heard of us before and they haven't heard our other episodes to hear you talking about your ear infection. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's riveting each week, the content we put out. It just gets better and better. Um, speaking of ears, what do you use to listen to your music? Are you an Apple Music person? Are you a Spotify person? What do you use? Spotify, 100%. It's just yeah. so much easier for... Uh, for our extended family to also leech off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I completely understand that one. Thank you, mum and dad, for still paying for Spotify. Um, I actually don't. <laughs> you know what? They don't listen to my podcast, so they won't hear that. They're not going to realise. Um, but I've got a gripe I'd like to share with you, uh, Ooh, Kevin. Yes, I do love listening to your gripes. Well, okay. Now, I don't know if this is just me, but I think that my Spotify algorithm is like, just given up or it's completely out of whack basically you know how it recommends playlists to you that it thinks that you would like and mm-hmm. pieces them together and it might be like chilled out playlists here you go george almost every single playlist that it gives me starts with the song lovely day by bill withers and he's driving me insane it's so insane and then the, the songs that follow are other ones which are just like fleetwood mac it's just like so familiar and it's as if that it's just completely given up in trying to attract me to listen to new playlists unless it starts with Bill Withers. And I'm at the point where I see that and I see that first song and I'm like, no, I'm not listening to it anymore. <laughs> and now I just have no new music to listen to. I, I'm at a complete loss. And we it's talk a- we, we talk about like 
giving the platforms what they want, right? And training the algorithm. So obviously at some point in my life, Kevin, whenever they showed me Bill Withers' Lovely Day at the beginning of a playlist, I was like, yes, yes, I have to listen to this. And it was just a trigger. And I started listening to it. And I must have done that for a period of time, trained the algorithm, and now that's all it knows. Yeah, I think that's probably the the main problem that a lot of people would find with algorithms. I mean, it's, it's the core of a lot of issues we have with these platforms is that uh, the algorithm isn't smart enough to realize when we actually want something new and to change up the palette, whether it be music or the type of content we consume on a Facebook or Instagram. Yeah, there was a period of time where Spotify was absolutely killing it for me. I was discovering heaps of new music I liked, but now it's just absolutely tanked it. I don't, I don't know what's going on, Kev, but that is my gripe. Well, maybe you just need to uh, search up some music that your sister listens to or <laughs> friends listen to and uh, confuse the algorithm a little. Kevin, can't you see how busy I am? You know, I spent an hour and a half getting a new mic together, getting a new setup for our podcast. I don't have time to look for new music. New music should find me. <laughs> that was the promise of Spotify. All right, stop making work for me. Yeah, we gotta we gotta send some uh, timely feedback to Spotify. Speaking of a new mic, I do see your new mic setup, and it's looking pretty good, mate. Thank you. You're thank sounding you. pretty good uh, in my ears too. Yeah, well, hopefully the content, uh, <laughs> what's coming out of my mouth, is actually better too. Um, <laughs> but that remains to be seen. Well, you can't buy that. No, no, you can't pay for that. Oh, well, you know, I'm a big fan of courses. I reckon you could do a course that would teach me to, to be a bit better. But um, maybe in the future, Kevin, maybe in the future. Maybe. All right, so where are we at this week? Last week, we spoke about defining your why and why your business exists. Yeah, we spoke about why. Kevin, you'd love talking about why. And I think we took our listeners through some great exercises last week to help them define their why and start crafting that message um, of their why that they can then use throughout their business. Kev, I just want to jump in and say today's episode fits into the first part of our five-part framework. It's under the be ready stage, which is we talk where we talk about laying the foundations for your business, for your brand. It's part of our five B's framework. And we said that every time we start uh, an episode, we're going to say where it fits in. So it fits in the foundations. Now, the next question after you ask, well, what's my why? You got to think about who, who does your business exist to serve? And that's what we're really going to cover this week, right? We're going to be talking about how to define who it is that you're serving, who your business is serving, and then how to actually document that in a, in a formal way. And there's a lot of fantastic benefits to documenting this process in a formal way, Kev. I'm sure you're very familiar with them as someone who is working in-house, right? If you have your dream customers documented who you're serving, it makes it so much easier um, to create your marketing plan around that, right? Because you know who you're serving, you know where to find them. If you have someone else join the team or come on board, then you don't have to do a whole process of going, well, this is who our core customer is and let me show you what they look like and show them a bunch of different resources. You have one document, you go, this is who it is. If you have an agency who want to help you with creative or want to help you with paid search or something else, you have a document to send them and go, this is our core audience. Yeah, definitely. That's um, all really pertinent benefits that we have from clear alignment on why and who it is that our business is serving. I think actually one one thing that internally we are dealing with at the moment, and I think a lot of other businesses would be dealing with as well, is 
the need to align between different departments. So our content team, those that produce the articles and the website content, the team that looks after UX, as well as the team that looks after graphic design and the look and feel of the website and the content we put out there. All those teams have to come together and talk. And, you know, we, we're a small team still by and large. So we do need to use freelancers to produce a lot of our content. So that means we have to constantly be talking about that brand alignment, that core of what we stand for and how we should look at, how we should look to our audience with those freelancers as well. So in order to communicate that really effectively and have all our internal departments align as well and the messaging that we present to our customers, it's definitely really important to know who it is that we're all talking to and trying to serve. Yeah, that's some great insight, Kev, as to how um, a B2B company actually would use this and help them not just externally when working with third parties, but internally, right? Making sure everyone's completely aligned. Yeah, it becomes a bigger and bigger problem the, the bigger the business grows. So a lot of businesses, as they move from that SME stage towards the medium, larger sized businesses, this is one of the most common uh, enterprise growing pains that I hear about. Yeah, and I think some people avoid doing it because it just seems like such a such a hassle. But the reality mm. is it's not that hard to do. We're going to show you how to how to do it in this podcast. We're going to walk you through some steps that you can take yourself to put this together. And then you can be the hero in your, in your company who's actually done it. Yeah, sometimes it's just about like starting that conversation, isn't it, George? Like someone else probably has the expertise to figure out and to maybe do the analysis side or look at the data or someone who's closer to the accounts might be able to give you some financial data um, on your customers. But it's just about starting that conversation and that thought process of aligning um, on these on, on these two concepts of why and who. Yeah, okay, Kev, so you're there leading us into what we're going to talk about is well, who are we actually going to identify as our dream customer? Who are we going to document as our dream customer? We start by saying you have to identify who your dream customers are in your business first, right? It's not every single customer. It's the ones that work best and fit best for your business. And we apply your favorite rule, Kevin, um, to do that. What's that rule? Yeah, that's the 80-20 rule. And I, I totally agree with you in talking about identifying your dream customer. I think Every business, anyone who works within a company, they will know that there's there's always one customer or person that you don't want to deal with externally. And they always <laughs> seem to take up all your time. And you always wonder, is this even worth it for the business for me to service this person? The truth is, it probably isn't. It's just that nobody's actually bothered to think about okay, like what are we actively doing about finding more of our dream customers and firing those that really don't serve the purpose of our business? So then we move to the 80-20 principle in order to figure out who that dream customer is. Yeah, maybe give us a quick, um, maybe give us a quick recap on what the 80-20 is, Kev. Yeah, so the 80-20 rule is basically this principle that 80% of the results tend to come from just 20% of the actions. Okay, Kev, so I think we've spoken about this a little bit before on the podcast about how we can apply this 80-20 rule to, as you said, almost all aspects of your life or business world. An example of your life is, well, your wardrobe, the clothes that you wear, you probably wear 
20% of your wardrobe 80% of the time, or at least that's what most people would do. Probably not you because you're an efficiency maniac and uh, everything in your closet is either white or gray. And if you're not wearing it, you basically give it away to someone else. But for everyone else, think about like in your wardrobe, are you wearing 20% of your clothes 80% of the time? If you have a share portfolio, is 20% doing the heavy lifting and getting you 80% of the overall growth in your portfolio? Probably. How can we then apply that to business, Kev? Can you give us an example in the, in the business world? Yeah. So if a typical business looks at their profit margins and who actually brings in those profits, the idea is that it's likely that 80% of your revenue or profit comes from only 20% of your customer base. It's not always exactly that divide. I think when we discussed it last time, George, we talked about how this concept, it's not a hard and fast rule, but it's its the sort of trend that you should look for. So what's that small group of customers who's bringing the bulk of the results in for your business? So most of the time when we talk about this concept in a business world, and when we mentioned it last, we talked about the example that Tim Ferriss gave in his book for our work week where he talked about how he was using 250 plus online affiliates to drive leads and sales to his business, but he stopped looking at all those and looked at just working on growing the two dream partners he had that brought in 90% of his income at the time. So this focus led to another 50% increase of income for each of those partners. And because he was so focused on driving those top dream uh, partners, he was able to just like fire the rest of his affiliates and save so much time in his business, but still grow the profits that he was bringing in for his business. All right, folks, quick breather here. In my time in B2B marketing, generally I've come to realize that there are just certain tools that can be an absolute game changer. And that's why I'm really excited to talk about Leadfeeder. Uh, it's a tool that helps you cut through the data and turn those website visitors into solid leads and opportunities for your business. Leadfeeder shows you which companies are checking out your site, tracking their behavior, and it integrates all of this with your CRM. And the result is it's basically like a secret weapon for targeted lead engagement, and it really makes it easier for your team to convert website traffic into sales. Head to leadfeeder.com, give it a free demo, and you'll also get a free extended premium trial when you let the rep know that you found out about Leadfeeder through the B2B Playbook podcast, that's leadfeeder.com. Okay, check it out. Back to the show. Right, so when we look at identifying our dream customer and applying the 80-20 rule, Kev, it means that we can't just look at the revenue that our clients are bringing in per client, right? We're going to look at what the cost of those clients are. So there's the cost to acquire them, the cost to keep them as a client, service and maintain them. Like when you add all of that up, yes, one particular client might bring in a lot of revenue, but what's it costing you? Are they constantly on like on customer support with you? Do they always have issues with you? Do they not treat your staff well? Do they expect you to be around after hours? You have to weigh all of that up when you're looking at, well, who's my dream customer? Yeah, exactly that. And I think the dream, uh, the 80-20 rule is really just that analysis tool to start that process. We're really just talking about here 
identifying your dream customers by looking at how much value do they actually bring into your business and how much they're draining away from your business and finding the best ones to focus on. Don't get ahead of yourself, listeners. Don't start firing your clients that you think are performing poorly tomorrow. It's just about identifying and and more of a gradual process of shifting is what we advocate. Okay, so that's one very good reason then for identifying a dream customer and why you need to document it and do it. And that is, again, as we spoke about, it helps really the bottom line of the business and helps you focus. And the second main reason that you should identify your dream customer is, I guess, kind of related. It's what really helps you completely distill who it is that your product or service is actually serving. Seth Godin talks about serving a tribe, right? And this is a way of you identifying who your tribe is. Because once you identify who your tribe is, you can gear your whole company to serving that tribe. So then they love and follow you. Yeah, this is the idea you were talking about earlier of making it easy to service your dream customers better. When we talked about, you know, aligning the team and delivering better value, this is just another example of how using the 80-20 rule and identifying your dream customers, how that then pushes it to allow you to serve the same group of people better. All right, Kev. So we've gone through and we've done the analysis of our existing clients and we've basically got a good idea of who that 20% is that's driving the business forward, right? And that's the 20% that we want to keep. If you listeners haven't done that in the 30 seconds um, from when we spoke about it till now, that's fine. You can go back and do that later. (laughs) But once we've got that 20%, we've got to think about within that 20%, who are the decision makers and the influencers in those businesses that we need to reach so they can become aware of our product or service? And they're the ones that we essentially have to convince that our product or service is the right one for them. Yeah, I'll give you a really good example here, listeners and and George. A little while back, I was talking to uh, a friend of mine who works in a law firm and they were talking about how they can improve the profitability and scalability of that law firm. Now, you might think that's really B2C in a lot of senses, but when we got down to discussing that in detail about the strategy going forward, it was actually a B2B play. And this is why. They were actually very specialized in the area of law they were in, so they had a very specialized set of skills. They weren't generalist lawyers, which meant that a lot of other law firms who were conflicted out or didn't have that expertise of particular matters in that field of law would refer cases to them. So they're actually making the majority of their profit from other law firms referring work to them. So they actually get like 90% of their leads from people just looking to do um, that piece of work. But that 90% only made up about 20% 20 of the profits that they actually made. What they actually made a lot of money on was the matters that were referred to them by other law firms. So it's a B2B relationship because those those matters were generally more complex, which led to more litigation, which led to higher profits. So it's really important to question your own understanding at this point when you apply that 80-20 rule and really, really be honest and focus on that 20% that's really bringing in the 80% of your profit. And then thinking about, okay, who are the influences of that group of people? So in this case, in this uh, legal example, the influences of those lawyers isn't family members or people around them or you know legal people around the people that needed this area of law done for them. 
it was actually those uh, accounting firms that influenced the law firms in that area. So people who refer work to, to the lawyers that those law firms talk to or get the info from, so legal publications, things like that. That's the actual decision and uh, decision makers and influencers involved in this particular case. So then obviously the recommendation from my end became, hey, you should probably talk to your talk to these publications in the legal space that these law firms read. You should probably talk to these law firms themselves and look to do um, sessions with them where you're actually training those people in those law firms and your expertise. And then they're now aware of you as an expert in the field and they'll refer the work to you as a result. So that's just a really interesting example of how that 80-20 principle looks like in action. Yeah, I think that was quite good, Kev, because it also expands our understanding of what we typically think about when we talk about the influencers and the decision makers, right? When we normally talk about influencers and decision makers, you think, well, within a certain company, let's just say within, uh, if we're selling to a law firm, the decision maker on whether they're going to buy your product or service, typically, depending on what it is, it might sit with like the partner, right? The head honcho, he's the Mm. one who signs off on the deal. The influencers are the other people who can influence the decision maker. And within the firm, there's people who sit under the partner or alongside the partner. So it could be other partners, senior associates, graduates, even the the PAs or executive assistants in there, right? Uh, Making all of them aware of the great benefits of your product or service. So influencing them so they can tell the decision maker, the partner, how great this is. But there's also the other influences, right, external to the company, which in your example were the accountants, which is another way of thinking about uh, who your influences are. So when we go ahead and actually make these dream customer avatars, we're going to do a couple of them because there's always more than one person that you need to hit with that message, right? You need to kind of be everywhere, a bit like a rash. And the more touch points you have around the decision maker, the less choice they're going to give them in uh, when they're deciding whether or not to go with you. One stat that I've got, Kev, is that the average buying decision in the B2B world involves 6.8 people. Yeah, wow. That's uh, a lot more than most people would think it is. Yeah, it's a lot more than <laughs> you had to consult before you bought that white T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, George, just before we go ahead, do you mind defining what a dream customer avatar is? I think you just mentioned that concept just then. Yeah, sure, Kev. You, your dream customer avatar is basically a document that brings your dream customers to life. And you do one per decision maker or one per influencer. And you include a whole lot of information about them that essentially paints a very colorful picture about who it is that they are, what do they look like, what are their interests, what problems are they having, what are their motivations. And you take into account a whole lot of work-related information when you're doing that, but also some personal information. And the idea is that at the end of this, we have a very clear record of who this person is, what they look like, what their motivations are. So then we know, well, one, where can we find them? So Because we want to find more of these customers. And two, when we find them, how are we going to talk to them in a way that they listen to us so we can start to convince them that our product or service is the best? So the idea here really is just to like actually put down on paper who that person is, who that avatar, I guess, is of your dream customer. 
Yeah, that's right. And look, everyone probably has a pretty good idea as to who that is, or at least they think they have a good idea. But once you actually go through the process of documenting it, we already touched on the um, the huge benefits of doing that. But I think you'll actually learn so much more about it when you sit down and do this. And it's going to open your brain to ideas that you haven't had on where to find them and what to say to them. Yeah, I think that becomes really powerful, as you said, and as well in combination with that 80-20 principle, if you're looking to draw that dream customer avatar around your best customers based on quantitative analysis, and then you combine it with all this qualitative information about who that person is, what the you know pain points that you're solving for, what, they, what, what that um, person is really dealing with day to day, then it makes it so much easier to have a document to refer to all the time when you're writing ad copy, for example. I know a lot mm. of people struggle with that or writing a piece of content that speaks to their dream audience, dream customers. If they have a list of pain points they, they've got listed down next to that avatar, they can just go through and answer those questions. Yeah, spot on. Well, Kev, should we go through just a, maybe a couple of things that we definitely want to include on that dream customer avatar so the listeners know exactly what's in it and how they can do it? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so starting off, the most basic one is just uh, personal background information. So stuff like a rough age range, a rough gender indicator, you know, it, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to hit all these things, but things like a highest level of education, location, lifestyle, personality traits, all this stuff starts to help you paint a picture of who it is that you're talking to. And you'll be amazed how much subconsciously your language will adapt to that just by knowing it and having it down on a piece of paper. Yeah, giving yourself that demographic base is like a really strong starting point. As you said, you can really start to talk to that person because you're thinking about who they are and what they look like. It's probably a little dangerous too, you know, <laughs> some personal biases might start coming through, but that's the point of this exercise is when you start noting it down on paper, it, you're much more likely to catch yourself in, in those personal biases and fix them and right there and then change that, leave certain fields out or maybe include different things. Like maybe you think only people in Sydney are interested in this product. But actually, when you look at the data, when you when you think about it and you see just Sydney written down on paper, you're, you, you might think to yourself, actually, hey, we should include Melbourne. We should include New Zealand. We should even include Singapore, the States in this because our product or service speaks to that audience as well. And then that's sort of giving you uh, the opportunity to review some of your inbuilt biases and then potentially find a new opportunity for your business or your service. Yeah, that's a great point, Kev. I just want to stress to our listeners that the profiling still has to be tight enough, right? That you, that you can make use of it. So we want to probably start narrower and then expand maybe over time. Yeah, yeah. So the idea is that you have a second dream customer persona over time. Yeah, you can revisit it and you can you can redo it as your business grows and evolves. Mm. And Kev, once you've got that demographic information down, uh, you can then move on to something that you typically wouldn't include in a B2C dream customer avatar, but you would in B2B is, well, we want details on this person's business background, uh, including what industry do they work in? Uh, how large is that organization in terms of numbers of employees? What's their job title? What are their responsibilities in their job? Who do they report to? This gives you an idea of, well, what's their role like at work and are they an influencer or are they a decision maker? 
That's a really powerful section, particularly for B2B. It really grounds a lot of the, the, the questions that you might then try and answer in the content that you come up with based on where contextually they sit in the business world. Yeah, and you can even go beyond that and look at, well, what are their motivations? What are their goals? What metrics do they use to measure their own success? So there's metrics that they've been assigned by the company that they're working for. So that might be something that's tied to like a performance review and there might be outcomes there. Or it might be something that's actually written in their job description, like what metrics their success will be measured by. But then there's also probably some internal metrics and internal goals and motivations that they have themselves as well. So really trying to get into the head of your dream customer is going to really help you here. All right, George, I think all that stuff definitely starts to bring that dream customer avatar into focus. A couple of other things we can add to it. You can try and list down the challenges that they face in trying to meet those goals or metrics that George just mentioned. And there's also preferences in terms of how they consume media and maybe what communities that they're part of, whether that's online or offline, and what kind of language or tone or voice they might use when they are speaking or producing content themselves. That gives us so much more insight into them, doesn't it? So we listed what their motivations are, what their goals are, what their metrics are that they're measuring, and then what challenges that they're facing in trying to meet those goals. So then we know their challenges, and then we should have something to help them with those challenges, right? So immediately we can start to think about, well, how are we helping them achieve their goals? And then that next stage is going, okay, well, we know what their issue is. We know we can help them. How do we talk to them and where can we find them? And that's when we're going to their preferences about, well, how do they consume media? Are they people who scroll on mobiles throughout the day? Are they largely desktop heavy people? Are they people who are going to be coming across your service during the nine to five, or is it after hours where they're most likely to be to come across and be receptive to your service? Are they even an industry that likes to read or a position or a group of people that likes to read very formal, dense stuff like, oh, I don't know, lawyers probably? Yeah. Um, or are they, you know, a bit more time poor, but more casual in tone? Like a lot of marketers like you and myself, we respond a lot better to light articles that don't go too in-depth within that article, but link out to other resources that are more in-depth. Let's use the B2B playbook as an example, Kev. We know that we're really making this for business owners and younger digital marketers too who are in the B2B space. And we knew that we wanted people to be looking at this during their nine to five, right? And where can you, what social site can you be on at nine to five at work without looking bad? It's LinkedIn, Right? If someone catches you looking at Facebook, then that's not as good of a look. But B2B mostly happens on LinkedIn. So the podcast we make very readily available on LinkedIn and all of our resources on LinkedIn, right? We're going where our users are. That's right. That's why we put a lot of our stuff on LinkedIn and why we choose content in terms of articles as our other uh, means of communicating with our audience because reading articles that's relevant to B2B marketing, that is something that should be done and is acceptable for our listeners. I think a great tip here, uh, one that, you know, when you were building out our whole dream customer template, actually, George, um, that you put in was uh, actually getting quotes from, you know, a few interviews with people that sit within that dream customer avatar because direct quotes really show 
and encapsulate all that. It encapsulates in the content their goals and challenges, but also the language that you, they use. So it's it's much better to have their language uh, communicated in that dream custom avatar. Yeah, I literally called and spoke to and interviewed a bunch of in-house B2B marketers and B2B business owners to get real quotes and then you know, tell them about our podcast as well and see how it would help them overcome any challenges that they're facing and getting real quotes from them about if it would help them and what objections they might have to consuming our content, be it a podcast or an article. So really getting firsthand insight from these dream customers as to why or why they wouldn't use their product or service. Yeah, I think we have to be honest with ourselves and we definitely had to be really honest with ourselves to say that we don't really occupy some of those positions. We do need to talk to somebody in those positions to make sure that the content and the way we speak about it is actually going to be helpful to them, is actually going to be uh, consumable for them uh, to be able to then action it as well. Cool. So once we've brought that dream customer to life with this persona, um, I mean, what I like to do at the end of... Uh, persona or avatar, we use those terms interchangeably. But what I like to do at the end of the dream customer avatar is actually write at the end examples of messaging that you can actually use that's going to resonate with your dream customer avatar, including, you know, how would you describe your solution to have the biggest impact on that particular dream customer avatar and what would resonate most with that particular avatar? Yeah, that's a really great point. Just to start you on that next step and lead you into starting to produce content um, so that you have some examples ready in mind so that you don't get roadblocked trying to think of how to communicate with them. That's a great point. I think maybe it's time to turn our attention to actually giving our listeners some ideas about how to gather this information. We talked about a lot about like the information that you do need to get and we've given that example about doing interviews, but maybe we can go through a bigger list of how you would get this stuff together because it can be, I know for me, when you first mentioned getting this together, it seemed like the first question I had was how are we actually gonna gather this information? Yeah, this is the part, um, which again, still isn't that hard. It might just take a little bit more time in terms of gathering this information. But if you've done your 80-20 analysis, you got the 20% that are your your dream customers. I would start by just interviewing or surveying your best customers. And there's a lot of that information there that you probably don't even have to ask them, like you know where they live, what they do, et cetera. But you could just straight up ask them some of those points in the dream customer avatar and see what they have to say, particularly the ones that you trust. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I know a lot of, in the past, a lot of clients that I've dealt with on agency side, and I'm sure you have as well now, George, they might initially be a little bit hesitant to reach out to their best customers because they're worried that asking for that information, you know, your best customers will be like, oh, you know, mm. uh, you, you might rock that relationship a little bit. Yeah, I, th- I think there's there's a lot more value to be gained from having that conversation. And a lot of times you, you'll know who you can talk to or not about this kind of stuff. It might also surprise you of how much they're willing to give you because if you frame it in the way of, you know, we want to improve how we service you, I think a lot of them will be on board to help you as well. Yeah, I think so. People love talking about themselves too, right, Kev? I mean, you're mm. one of the few people who doesn't love doing it, but most people love talking about themselves. So yeah, if you frame it in the way that you said and you invite them to talk about themselves, I think you'll learn quite a lot. If you are still too scared of talking to your best customers, 
<laughs> I guess you could replace this, but I would also supplement that with talking, if you have it, to your sales or customer service team, right? They're the ones who are talking to those dream customers all the time. They have a lot of interactions with them. They probably have a ton of information already just waiting. They'll, they'll be a lot closer to your best customers and probably have a lot of insight that you might not get if you're at arm's length to the day-to-day interactions with your customers or people within those businesses that are your customers. So you might have a really close relationship with a business owner or a procurement officer within um, a, a client's business, but your customer service team might have a very close relationship with the people in that business doing the work. And sometimes you need to talk to them as well because as George mentioned before, it takes 6.8 people to make a decision in a B2B you know, business transaction. So you need to be talking to not just the procurement officer, not just the business owner, but the rest of the people around those roles in the, the client's business. Yeah, and the next point I'd like to make, Kev, is a little bit related to that too is, well, you can review your in-house database, right, to see which are your best customers. But that might be something that you can also even ask like the person who is in accounts or a CFO of your company, right? They're going to have a good idea as to which customers are the best for your bottom line. And then you can take that information and then you can look at, well, what information did I get from customer service, right? Are the people that our CFO is saying are super profitable a total pain in the ass for our customers? service or are they actually lining on uh, who is the best customer and you can really just gather so much information from different people within your company yeah definitely and you know for those soul traders or one-man band shows out there just tally up how much money you made from every client of yours and have a look at it that way (laughs) hopefully be a very long process at all yeah yeah you can keep it simple for sure but if you do want to make it a little bit more complex another thing that you can look at if you've been up and running for a while is look at your website analytics you can look at which pages or services uh, on your site people are looking at the most so that will give you some idea as to which one there's the most demand for yeah we would definitely recommend combining this with actual you know, revenue dollar values that come through because this is just a signal and an indicator of where most of the attention is going. It might present to you an opportunity to produce new uh, services that speak better to the audience that's finding you, um, but definitely use it in combination with your revenue data. Cool. So as we're looking at how we can gather this information, we spoke about different ways to gather this demographic data, uh, talking to your customers like personally. We can also even look at what our dream customers do on social media to look at what topics they like to engage with, what topics they're interested in and what language they use. So then when we create content for them or talk to them, we can replicate that. So we're talking to them in a way that resonates with them. Yeah, you can really go down a a rabbit hole here and find some stuff maybe you don't want to find out about your customers and and their personal interests. Um, But the idea is to, yeah, like George said, focus on how they talk about the stuff that's relevant to their business, to the business world and the space that they're working in, the industry level comments that they're making on the content that they're looking at. And that's where you really should be focusing on, not their, uh, you know, MySpace account. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, Kev, I'll I'll give an example. You can literally just jump on LinkedIn and you can find out so much about your dream customers on LinkedIn. So go to one of your dream customers, check out their LinkedIn profile, 
reading their bios is going to give you an insight into the demographic details, right? Because people normally include some kind of personal information in the, in their bios. Then you can look at their activity and look at what they post and comment on. So that gives you an insight as to what they care about. Now, people mostly post and comment on things that are work-related to LinkedIn, but also there is some personal stuff there too, but both are extremely relevant. You can then look at their skills and endorsements section of the LinkedIn profile, and that gives you an awesome idea of what areas they want to be seen as an expert in. So then that tells you, well, what do we need to educate them in or what, yeah, what resource do we need to create that they're going to engage in? I can already imagine a lot of listeners and certainly myself, a lot of the time, we're hesitant to click onto someone else's bio. (laughs) particularly on LinkedIn when they get a profile view notification Uh, but that just means that you're checking in on your your favourite client I mean what's the big deal there right (laughs) that's exactly what I was going to say you know like most people will see that as a positive Uh, and who knows that might strike up a conversation and absolutely yeah the chances of something good coming out of that interaction is higher than something negative and if you're really adverse to it you can always uh, set yourself on private mode uh, so that you don't get any information about who views your profile as well and then uh, view other people's profiles that way. Um, but that transparency, it, it can do more uh, good for your business than bad. So yeah, definitely encourage you to embrace doing that and set aside your or your fears of being seen as a bit of a LinkedIn stalker. That's a good point, Kev. Well worth addressing. I'd like to leave one more hot tip for using LinkedIn to glean some of this information that you might be too afraid to ask your dream customers um, over the phone or in person. And one that I think can be tough to ask them is more like the specifics of their job, right? What their metrics for success are, what their job description is. But Sometimes you can actually uh, get this information from job sites themselves, right? Or from even from LinkedIn job postings for the position that fit your dream customer. You can go and Mm. look at those and they tell you what their needs, objectives, goals, and pain points are quite often. Yeah, that's an awesome hack. I definitely have used that before. In, In my personal experience as well, when I... Early on in my career, when I was looking to make a, a career change or promoted to a different level or a different role, I would look at the stuff that is being required in the job descriptions for those type of roles. And then I would actively work to get those skills. So it's the same thing here. Look at your dream customer avatar or personas, job uh, listings, as George said, figure out what their pain points are or the common skills that they need to have and start producing content about that stuff. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, it's a, it's a good hack for sure. And Kevin, I have terrific news for our listeners who, as my friend reminded me the other day, are always only really half listening to a podcast. <laughs> is all of that information is going to be in a dream customer avatar template that we are going to link in the show notes and you guys can just download for free with all those questions and you can fill them out yourself in your own time yeah i have to say george that looked like a great template uh when you first showed it to me and it still holds up i started using it in our work on the b2b playbook and it's definitely how i start to think about the clients and the the audiences that i'm addressing at metagy as well yeah awesome so listeners if you haven't done it for your company yet or for yourself please do it if you have done it it's probably worth checking this out anyway because there's a few more things that you might have might have missed and it might be time to go ahead and revisit your dream customer avatars again. 
And a reminder for our listeners that that template um, is available not just in the show notes, but it's also at the b2bplaybook.com. Awesome. Well, I think to wrap up uh, today's episode, the key takeaway here is you need to define your dream customers and really start to focus on them to drive your business. Yeah. And your dream customer avatar is an excellent way of documenting who that dream customer is that's going to drive your business forward and can save you as the business owner or the person in marketing at that b2b company a ton of time all right awesome next week we're going to be looking at how to get inside the mind of your dream customers so we can communicate more effectively the benefits of your product or service to them cool and you can find the links to everything we discussed in the show notes We'll chat to you next week, team. Thank you, Kev. Thanks, George. Cheers. Thanks, everyone. Bye. A quick note before you go, listeners. You can find more great content and get in touch with us at theb2bplaybook.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter while you're there. We'll be back the same day and same time with another episode next week. Thanks for tuning in to the B2B Playbook, the easier way to champion your business online.